0: This is Faith Is, and I'm so glad you've joined us. This is the program where we take a look at faith, a lot of things related to faith, and we try to answer questions that people are interested in knowing the answer to. I'm not so sure we get to every question. In fact, I'm sure we don't, but we try to help people strengthen their faith, deepen their understanding of God, so that we can all have absolute confidence in His trustworthiness, That's the working definition I've used of faith for a long time. Faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. So we want to help you. We want to help everybody have faith in God because we want to be able to trust him. It's important that we trust God. That's what he wants from us. So that's what we're doing here on Faith Is, and I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and I'm so glad to spend a few minutes with you. So glad you're willing to spend some time with us. I'm the pastor at Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida, so I am a real live, I think it's kind of amusing, but I'm a real live working pastor. Uh, That's what I do. We try to approach this program from a pastor's perspective and try to give you some helpful things for you to think about, try to help you reach some conclusions on your own. You don't need me telling you everything, but we do need guides to guide us in the right direction And I hope that I can be that for you and help you think about some things more deeply so that you can make some better decisions and deepen and strengthen your faith. So enough about the introduction. What are we going to do today? Well, today I thought we would pick up, and since it's summer and and schedules are challenging, including mine, I thought we'd go back to another instant sermon program. Now, you might remember if you listened a few weeks ago, I introduced this idea that we do around our church about four times a year and people submit questions, and, and in a service, I, instead of preparing a sermon, I prepare the best I can. I have yet to prepare the right stuff, because people always are thinking about different things than I am, but people will submit what they're interested in, and they'll give me a question or a thought or something that is on their mind, usually in the form of a question, and then we'll talk about it, and it's not an attempt to stump me people have gotten over that a long time ago because they know that's not difficult it's more an attempt to reach better understandings and get perspective on some things and try to hear about some things that are on our minds and people don't often have a chance to do that so that's why we do that and a few weeks ago when we did that here on the program i went through a few questions i didn't get through all of the ones that i had in mind so i thought well we didn't get through them all let's circle back and take a look again And uh, yes, it's not exactly spur of the moment, but it is a little bit of thinking out loud. And in that I don't prepare a script for these kinds of things. I just try to answer them as uh, God helps us answer them. And then similar way to I would at church, just try to answer them um, on, on the spot, on the spur of the moment, and help people think along with me. And hopefully by doing that, we reach good conclusions and we challenge each other to think carefully about things. So let's take the next question. They were just some questions I put together from previous times that that we've answered at church, and I thought they might be useful for you. So here's the first one. Discuss the implications of Jesus telling the rich man to give away all his riches in order to have eternal life. Wow, that's a pretty, pretty tall order there. But that's an example of the kind of things we get on Instant Sermon Sunday, and I tell people that I don't want them to feel reluctant to ask important questions. I don't pretend I have all the answers, but we're going to take a look at this because people have asked, and so I think we should take a look at that story. It's a story that comes from Mark, and I want to read some of it from Mark chapter 10 just so we'll have an understanding of of what we're talking about, and we can all be on more or less the same page. So in Mark chapter 10, starting with verse 17, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, before we go any further, let's make sure we understand that the question that starts this conversation is from this man asking how he can participate in he can in the words of the niv inherit eternal life so there's a lot at stake here in jesus answer a lot of important things going on so what must i do to inherit eternal life continuing with verse 18 why do you call me good jesus answered no one is good except god alone well let's stop again and i don't mean to be breaking that up unnecessarily but but we started out by the man asking about eternal life, and then Jesus starts answering with a question. And he asked the man, why do you call me good? And he frames that question with the statement, no one is good except God alone. Well, that's important because what we know because of the way Jesus approached that is he's saying to the young man, to the man who asked the question, he's saying, I am a good teacher and I am God. So in other words, Jesus is saying to the man, he's saying to us as well, you've come to the right place to ask about eternal life. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. He continues, you know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Wow, there's another big statement. So let's just stop again. So here's the man looking to understand eternal life, wanting to make sure he can inherit eternal life. And Jesus gives him a list of commandments. And he says, I've kept all of these since I was a boy. Now, that is a big statement, don't you think? Imagine saying to Jesus, well, I've lived up to all of that. Well, I'm not sure Jesus bought that, because when we continue with verse 21, here's what happens. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other who then can be saved jesus looked at them and said with man this is impossible but not with god all things are possible with god and we'll just stop right there with the reading of that story and and, and think about it a little bit so again this man comes to Jesus wanting to know how he can inherit eternal life. A very good question, an important question. Have you given thought to that? Don't overlook that. You see, we tend to think that, um, well, we've got plenty of time. We'll take care of that later. I would urge you not to take that perspective. I would urge you to take seriously the idea, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Now, it's also interesting that, that he asked it, what must I do? Uh, we often want to answer those questions or ask those questions with what must I believe to inherit eternal life? And that word believe is used often in the New Testament, and I'm I'm not challenging the use of that word, but here we need to take careful notice that, that the man asked the question, what must I do? And then later, when Jesus answered the question, he gave him something to do. You know we often think that there's nothing we can do in concerning this business of eternal life. And I want to submit to you that based on Jesus' response to this man, eternal life and preparing for it is about doing the right things. Because Jesus told him what he needed to do. The man had said, "I've kept all the commandments." In other words, he had done all of those things that Jesus brought up, all of those right things he said I've done. Well, Because of the way Jesus responded to him, there may be a little more to that than the story tells us, but Jesus did identify that he had a problem, and there was something he needed to do. And so Jesus tells him to go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. So again, Jesus is saying, here's something to do. It's not something we think about doing, but I guess we need to think more carefully about that. And Jesus says, by doing what I'm telling you to do, you will have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. Well, the man didn't want to do that because his face fell and he went away sad. He had great wealth the implication is that he didn't want to give that wealth up, and Jesus goes ahead and explains that that's a common problem. People don't want to give their money up, and Jesus here challenges this man right at the point of what he needs to know and of what he needs to do relative to eternal life. Now, let's think about that a little bit. A few weeks ago— a couple of weeks ago, I guess now, I held up a $1 bill at church. And uh, I asked people, what do you see? What is this? Well, they, they know me well enough <laughs> that, uh, that they're pretty careful not to just um, answer too quickly on some of those kind of things, because they know I'm always thinking about things. And I probably have something else in mind besides what it looks like. It's a $1 bill. That was obvious. And uh, I wanted everybody to know it was a $1 bill. And I used a $1 bill on purpose, Um, just thought it made the point. But I finally said, this is a barrier. This is something that keeps people out of heaven. I don't remember at the time whether I used the expression eternal life, but that's what I meant, that for some people, money, a dollar keeps them out of heaven. And I went on to say that there are people that that they think about God as just someone they tip now and then because they like what he did for them or they're feeling generous that day. And I was trying to help people understand that, that money sometimes becomes a barrier. People want to hang on to that. And that's what's happening in this story here right here. This man would not give up his money even for eternal life. Even though Jesus, who had established that he was God, was telling him, this is what you need to do. That's a chilling prospect. You know, a lot of people say, well, you can't talk about money in church. I talk about it all the time. I'm, I'm coming to the conclusion that anything that people say we can't talk about in church is the very thing we should talk about in church, because that's the thing that God is probably talking to the people about in church, and we need to come to grips with it. Uh, maybe he's talking to you about it, but we need to realize that money should not be a barrier, and we should not let it keep us from God. You know, the Bible teaches us that we need to put God first in every area of our life, including our money, our finances. I'm convinced that's why the Bible teaches us to tithe, is so that we will put God first, and we will get that out there, and not even not even worry about it. Just give it to God and trust him with all of the rest. I mean, here's a man who wanted to trust Jesus' answer so he can have eternal life, and, and he wouldn't give up his money because it seems that he trusted in it more than he trusted in Jesus. And see, that's where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? So I don't know where you are on your thinking about this, but but I urge you, I urge you to think seriously about whether or not money is a barrier keeping you from God. Well, I've been thinking about this a little bit and I wasn't thinking about it because of what we were going to talk about today. It just kind of seems to work out that way. Isn't it nice how God kind of puts things together for us sometimes? i'm I'm regularly amazed at how He connects the dots for me and and I guess he has to do that because he knows I couldn't do it on my own. But uh, he just seems to put these things together. So so I was thinking about money again. I thought about this for a while. Uh, I was listening to a podcast and a trained economist was talking on the podcast and and, and I really do enjoy listening to economists. They think so differently. Uh, or at least that's the way it is to me. Maybe it's because they think so differently from me. I, I, I don't know. But I just love the way they look at things and the way they challenge us differently. And so this man was talking about money. And he said, rhetorically on the podcast, uh, do you know what money is? Well, it's a dollar or 10 or 15. Well, he wasn't getting at that. He was, he was trying to make the point. And so he explained that money is a carrier of value. Money is something that we use to transfer value from one person to another. So if I go to the store and I'm looking for a widget, shall we say, and that widget at the store is priced at $10, and I think that that widget at the store is only worth $5 to me, then I won't give my value that I'm carrying around in my pocket, my $5 to the store, because I don't think that it should be worth $10 and I'm not going to give them twice the value that I place on that item. So I keep my $5, $10 in my pocket, Because I'm going to keep the value. I'm going to carry that value around with me and not give it to them. So money becomes a carrier of value. Now, if I see something that costs $1,000, I might be willing to pay $1,000 for it. If I'm convinced it's going to be $1,000 worth of value to me, and I've done that, and so have you. And you've purchased things that cost more than $1,000. You may have purchased a house. Well, it would be likely more than a thousand dollars, but you decided that was worth it. And so you were willing to take that value out of your own pocket and give it to someone else so that you could eventually own that home because you believed it was more valuable than the money that you were carrying around in your pocket. See, money is a carrier of value and it's not so important the amount, it's important the concept that it's a carrier of value. Well, the amount might come into play because here, apparently, the amount did come into play. The principle is the same regardless of the amount. But here Jesus said to this man, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. So Jesus was saying all of the stuff, all of the things uh, all of the things that you have that will one day end up in a yard sale. Well, he didn't say that, but you understand what I'm getting at. All of these things that are so important to us, and I'm not saying they aren't, and we have to have certain things in order to live. I get that. Don't, don't go beyond what Jesus said here. But he says to this man, you need to sell everything you have and give it to the poor. In other words, you need to transfer all of this value that you have, all of these things that you find so valuable You need to turn them in to cash and give to the poor. And in doing that, Jesus said, you will transfer value to heaven. Remember how I said it, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. So that value that's found in the stuff that you convert into cash, you will give to the poor. And not only will you give that value away so that you no longer have it, but in giving it away, you will be laying up treasure in heaven. You will have, as Jesus said in the NIV, you will have treasure in heaven. So it's a transfer of value. Now, how does that apply to us? Well, uh, when you go to church, they probably— allow you to give an offering, to give your tithes and offerings as the Lord blesses. Well, when you make that decision, you are establishing a level of value in the context of your life on God and His church, His people, and you are transferring that value from your pocket to His. And I don't think we stop to think about that in those terms you know there are many many people so the so the research that i've seen indicates that attend church and never give even one dollar to god now something's going on here i I think that we ought to uh, think about that what's going on that keeps us from transferring value to god Now, especially true in this story when we think about eternal life, but isn't that what we're all looking for? Don't we all want to be with God in heaven one day? Don't we all want to take advantage of the life that the Bible promised that Jesus died to give? And yet we keep this value to ourselves. So so I guess I, I want to help us think about this in this way. The, the man had a unique challenge. I don't know of any other place in the Bible that Jesus was this straight up and said, "You got to give away all your stuff. give to the poor. Uh, don't know any, any other time that that Jesus said that to someone. In fact, I, it's not common practice. in fact, I've never known or heard of anyone. may have happened. I'm, I'm not saying it hasn't, where people have felt compelled to give everything, that they have a way in order to follow Jesus. So I don't know that this is a normative command that everybody should follow. We, we have tended to assume it's not because it wasn't practiced that way. But what it does teach us is that we need to take seriously the value we place on God, His church, His people. Because when we hold on to that carrier of value and we don't give to God, we are saying something about how we value God. Now, I know, I know, I know people are going to say, no, but I value God. It doesn't have anything to do with money. I got a nice theological word for that argument. You ready? Baloney. It does have to do with money because Jesus said in the parable You need to do this. The man asked the question, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And we want to hide behind, well, I believe Jesus is God. We want to hide behind all of these things, but we don't tend to want to do what God has called us to do. So what's he asking you to do? That's really the implication. That's really the, the heart of it. This man had something to do, and now so do we. It's our move, don't you think? Well, there was a, another question that, that I was asked, and it came in one of our Instant Sermon Sundays, and it's, it's a little bit related to this idea. And so when I was thinking about this, I, I thought, well, let's, let's include this here. And, and it's the question that's quite simple. Is being saved enough? Is holiness a requirement to heaven? Well, I was thinking about that. That's really a curious question that we ask. Is being saved enough? Well, I don't know what the person who wrote the question meant by being saved. Of course, by definition, if a person is saved, if a person has has experienced salvation as the Bible talks about it, then clearly that by definition is enough. Uh, We don't need to make it more mysterious than that. Uh, They go on to ask, is holiness a requirement to heaven? Well, uh, why would that need to even be asked? If we're going to be faithful followers of Jesus, don't we, by definition of that choice, pursue a life of holy living? So I've been thinking about this. Okay. And and here you go again. I know I think about these things differently than a lot of people do. So hang on, here we go. Is being saved enough? Well, let's imagine, and uh, all we can do is imagine, because that's all we have with this delightful medium of radio and podcasts. Let's imagine that there is a line and on one side of the line, a person is saved, and on the other side of the line, the person isn't. That's consistent with what we teach ourselves, that there comes a point in our lives that we have to decide, are we going to follow Jesus or are we not? So, take it another step. So, the person has decided to step across this imaginary line and say, yes, I'm in, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to change my life and give allegiance to Jesus. That's what Jesus meant when he said, repent and believe the good news. You can look that up in the first chapter of Mark. Most translations don't say it the way I say it. I'm saying it the way the text meant it. And when you study it a little bit farther, you understand that it just doesn't come across that way in our English translation. Repent clearly means change your life. The believe is something we have to explore more deeply, and I've become convinced what that means is giving allegiance to Jesus. So when we become a Christian, when we are saved, shall we say, and that's a perfectly good word, then we have determined to change our life and give allegiance to Jesus. We have stepped across the line, and our allegiance is 100% to Jesus. So we are now saved. So then people ask other questions kinds of questions, and this is holiness a requirement to heaven is one of those kinds of questions. In other words, how much do I have to be saved? <laughs> well, now, why do we ask that question? It sort of implies, and, and I guess I'm being a little ornery here, but I think we need to think seriously about this. We, we just don't take the time to reflect on this if we have to ask a question like a requirement to heaven, what does that say about the seriousness of our commitment to change our lives and give 100% allegiance to Jesus? You see, it's as though people want to step across that line just enough to be saved, because we all know no one wants to experience hell, life apart from Jesus. So everybody wants to be saved so they can go to heaven, the expression we use, and yet I don't believe that's what the New Testament is talking about. Just get to the point where you're just enough in to be in, it's talking about this is a lifestyle, this is 100% different, this is giving yourselves fully to following Jesus, this isn't doing what you want to do and then turning around and saying, yes, but i believe Jesus is the Son of God, then yes, I want to be saved. No, it's 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 a full-life commitment. It's literally saying, I'm going to change my life and give 100% allegiance to Jesus. And so if we're willing to give 100% allegiance to Jesus, then then the whole question of is being saved enough really doesn't apply because we're in, we're fully in, all the way in, And as I'm thinking about that, I I remember a story, I can't remember the details of it, but uh, as I understand it, it was a true story from years and years and years ago, back in the days when men fought wars with swords, and a certain king's soldiers, in fact, they were following the king's lead, decided they would become Christian, follow Jesus but they had a little bit of a problem because they weren't sure how their being a warrior fit into that. And so when they were baptized, they were baptized by immersion, they were immersed in water, but they kept the hand that held their sword up out of the water because they wanted that to be free to do what they needed to do as warriors. You know, sometimes I think that's what we want to do, is we want to have just enough of Jesus so that we can be saved, but we fail to realize that a life of holiness means that he gets more and more of us all of the time. In fact, to me, that's a a, a brilliant working definition of holiness, is that God gets more of me all the time, and so I don't hold anything back. Like the rich man, I don't hold back money. In any other situation, when Jesus calls me to do, I do. I don't say, well, I believe, I say I'm willing to do what Jesus calls me to do. Well, we didn't get very far on very many questions. I guess I have a tendency to um, go on and on and on. I told people at church yesterday about going to a school board meeting, and usually a school board meeting, you only get a minute if there's a lot of people that want to speak. And I said, can you imagine a preacher having something to say in only a minute? They were polite. They were nice. But it's a question worth asking. Well, we're going to continue this. I've got some more questions here. I love thinking out loud like this, and I hope you find it helpful. I want you to think deeply about these kind of things. I want you to consider, what is God asking you to do? Because a lot of times people get hung up on what God asks them to do. We used to sing, I'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord. I'll do what you want me to do. And we should still make that declaration. So will you? Are you all in in that sense? Well, I hope so. And we're going to explore some more things on Faith Is. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and I hope you'll stay with us. I hope this doesn't scare you away, because we're going to talk about fear next on Faith Is. And I hope you'll be part of that conversation, because that is one of the pervasive problems of our age. Let's be people that fear not. I'll be right back.
1: Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races. You toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control label insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM sleep. The only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support, delivered in a patent pending pill free ultra absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. It was a vision that gave birth to a unique multimedia platform that would combine classic talk radio, great writers, and memorable podcasts and videos. AmericaOutloud.com is a conservative leader in a field that is predominantly run by far-left progressive globalists. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio.
0: Our break. I'm so glad you're still with us here on Faith Is. I am Pastor Rick Stevens. I'm a pastor in Cape Coral, Florida at Diplomat Wesleyan Church. And we've been talking about some questions that people ask. These are questions that people have submitted to me on our instant sermon Sundays. That's the Sunday we have four times a year when people submit their thoughts and their questions and we have a conversation about them. It's really quite an exciting time. I have always enjoyed it, even though I'm usually surprised, um, spell that always surprised. I've never been able to guess what people are gonna ask, but that's okay. I don't tell them they have to ask certain things. I just give them the opportunity and then we talk about it. And so that's what we're doing today here on the program, Faith Is, and we're gonna try to help ourselves deepen our faith, strengthen our faith, stretch toward God, because we do not want to be people that shrink from what God calls us to do. We want to people that stretch, be people that stretch toward Him. There's no future in shrinking. We want to stretch. So let's take another question that, that people have asked, and, and this is one that's uh, something I've talked about a lot. I guess that's why people would bring up the subject. And this is a little different perspective on it. And I'm not sure I have a really good answer, but I said I would try. So here we go. Do you think, well, see, I always love it that way. When somebody says, do you think, then that sets me up that whatever I think is okay. But I'm trying to give a little bit better than just what I think. So do you think. That the fear that oh, let's start that again. Do you think that the f- trait of fear was in humans before or after? In other words, was it a result of the fall? I thought that was a pretty interesting question, and I was happy to think about that. I'm still happy to think about that. I'm not sure that I know definitively the answer to that. I I have a pretty good idea. You know, the Bible tells us over and over, and and many people have said, and I haven't counted them, so if you find out it's wrong, then I guess you'll have to let me know. But I've heard from many sources that the most frequent command in all of the Bible is to fear not, that we need to be people who have confidence in God and not be afraid. So let's explore this subject of fear a little bit, and the question is, did fear exist before the fall? or was it a consequence of the fall? Now just make sure we're all on the same page. When we, when we refer to the fall, we're talking about that time that the Bible describes in Genesis in the Garden of Eden, when God had created Adam and Eve, they lived in a perfect world, had everything they needed. They had no worries. They enjoyed walking and talking with God. Everything was as God intended it. It was the perfection of creation. Well, you know the story, it is told a little bit in different ways. And along comes a sneaky snake, and he convinces Adam and Eve to eat the forbidden fruit, because God had said, everything in the garden is for you, except stay away from this one tree, that's not for you. And the serpent convinced them that God was not telling them the truth, that, that they needed to try that fruit, and then they would be like God. Well, in reality, what was what happened was that that was the description of the first sin. It was the first time someone did what God said, "Don't." And so we call that the fall, because we also understand that the result of that incident and of sin entering the human condition, we have all been under the what we sometimes call the curse of sin because we have all experienced what it means to sin. We've never known what it was like for Adam and Eve before the fall, before sin. And after the incident at the tree and after they ate the forbidden fruit, it does describe them in the garden hiding from God, and it describes them as being afraid. So it's real easy to to say, and I don't see any other real explanation, that yes, Fear was a result of the fall because prior to the fall, there was absolutely nothing for them to be afraid of. God had provided for everything. He was their friend. They were on the same page with God. Everything was just like God wanted it to be at creation. But after they sinned and after they did what God said don't, then they had reason to fear because God had warned them that if you eat of the tree that I'm telling you to stay away from, that when you eat it, you will surely die. So they knew there was a consequence to that. And so, yeah, I think it's um, a result of the fall. Uh, Now, people say, is it sinful Um, when you think about the fear of God? Well, the Bible uses that expression from time to time, and we need to understand that when it says the fear of God, that's a holy reverence for God. And that's not the fear that Adam and Eve experienced in the garden. That's not the fear that most people talk about. That's a different expression. It's the idea that we need to reverence God. In fact, I think you can make a case and probably preach a sermon that we don't fear God enough. We take God for granted. We tend to say, well, God will understand. He knows what I really think. Uh, Yeah, I think God's looking at what we really do more than what we say we believe or that we want him to believe. God's, God's not fooled by us. Come on. We know that. But I was thinking about that business of fear, and, and I was doing a little work on, on the, the whole idea of, of, of fear because I looked at the story from Mark chapter 5, and, and there's a, a real interesting phrase that's jumped out at me, so I explored that a little bit this morning. Uh, I didn't realize I was going to be talking about it here because I hadn't looked at this yet, but here we go. See, there God makes these connections and helps us. It's, it's just remarkable. I don't know how I get along without it. It's, it's almost like I have to depend upon it. It's almost like God says, okay, come on, son. I know you're not going to get this. Let's go over here and take a look at this. So you'll be ready for this next thing. And I'm really glad. I'm happy for him to do that. I hope he never stops because uh, he knows where I'd be without his help. I'd be nowhere. Okay. So story is told in Mark chapter five, pretty pretty familiar story. I'm, I'm not sure whether everybody would have been familiar with it. I encourage you to read it, Mark chapter 5. Actually, there's two stories in there, but the story I want to focus on, I'm going to skip the other one. Uh, the other one might be more familiar. But anyway, at the beginning of chapter 5, a man named Jairus comes to Jesus and says, my daughter is deathly ill. Will you come with me to the house and heal her? And Jesus agrees to go. So they start on their way toward the house, and they get interrupted. large crowd had been around Jesus. He was interrupted. They were delayed. Jesus took care of helping another woman, and about the time that that encounter was wrapping up, a messenger arrived to tell Jairus, you don't need to bother Jesus, your daughter has died. Boy, heavy news. Well, Jesus hears what's said, and, and uh, he responds to that. And, and he said to, to, to Jairus, um, don't listen to them just trust me. Now, I'm I'm quoting the way the the message translation says it. it, It's really quite helpful. Don't listen to them, just trust me. Uh, some Some other translations say that we just need to believe or have faith, but Jesus says, don't listen to them, just trust me. And, and that really got my attention. I worked on a little bit more of that this morning. And, and, and I came to the conclusion that, you know, this is a good, a good reminder when it comes to fear. I don't know how Jairus responded when he heard that news. I can imagine how some of us would have responded. But Jesus says, don't listen to them, don't listen to the people that make you afraid. He didn't say the news wasn't true, but he said, just don't listen to them. Focus on me. And I don't know how you think about being afraid, but I know from what I've seen and experienced that a lot of times when I see something or hear something that is alarming, it makes me afraid. And here's Jesus saying, listen, don't listen to the voices that make you afraid. Just trust me. And I think that's good advice for us. And I want to encourage you. I want to flat out challenge you to identify the voices that make you afraid. Because God does not intend for us to be afraid. He intends for us to trust him. So, so what makes you afraid? Um, some people, they get caught up in the 24-hour media circus, and they listen to everything, and then some, and it's repeated over and over. And the more they listen, the more afraid they are, and they're all upset. And, and I want to say to them and to you, if you're one of them, just turn it off. Hear the words of Jesus. Don't listen to them. Just trust me. I'm not asking you not to be aware of what goes on in the world. Absolutely not. I think we should be aware. But if we're listening so much, or if that listening causes us to be afraid, I'm giving you permission to step back and just trust Jesus. It's not that I'm saying we need to keep our heads in the sand. Not at all. But what I'm saying is more important Is just trust Jesus. And that's really the whole point of the book of Revelation. People read the book of Revelation, they get all fearful and all upset and all concerned. When you look at the book of Revelation, the point is no matter what happens, no matter how bad it gets, even if the very worst happens, don't worry. Jesus has your back because Jesus cares about his people. And we need to emphasize that and re-emphasize that so that we don't get caught up in this cycle of fear. And, and it's been my observation that the people that wrestle with fear are the most miserable people. They can't seem to express confidence in God, Oh, they'll say it when you challenge them, but they don't seem to be able to live confidence in God. And yes, every time I talk about something like this, I think about. I hope the worst doesn't happen to somebody that's listening to me, and in in my head, I'm thinking, I hope the worst doesn't happen to me. Well, some worse things have happened in my life. They may have happened in yours. But I have learned, in spite of the things that I found so unpleasant, and I could name them, and I won't. I have learned. That no matter what, I need to trust him. I don't need to trust in the circumstances turning out the way that I expect them to. I, I try to make sure good things happen for me and for others. I understand that. You do too. But there are things that are beyond my control. There are things that happen. I can't manage everything. So I'm trying to learn. I want to encourage you to learn. I've learned better. I've lived a day or two, and that's helped. That we just need to develop the attitude that leads with trust, that leads with absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. So, here are the words of Jesus Don't listen to those people that make you afraid. Don't listen to those voices in your head or outside your head that stir up fear inside you. Just don't listen to them. Trust Jesus. Develop that muscle that helps you have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, because that's where the joy lies. And no matter what happens, if you've, as we said earlier, stepped across that line, if you've changed your life, if you've given 100% allegiance to Jesus, He's got your back. So don't be afraid. Step up and have confidence. All right. Sounds like I'm preaching. Well, I am. That's kind of what Instant Sermon is about. And I guess I never thought I'd be that guy that you press the button and preaching comes out, but, uh, here we are. So let's take another question. And this is a little bit related to, to what I just said. And I don't know that I intended that, but it's a question people are asking. And I think we need to to think about this carefully too. It's pretty simple. Are we being manipulated by the media? And if so, who is behind this? Well, that's a pretty softball question. If you think about it, are we being manipulated by the media? Absolutely. Of course we are. Why would you think we aren't that's been going on? As long as I have been aware that there were television announcers telling us the news, people have been trying to manipulate my opinion and yours. They want us to think a certain way and they have an agenda. It's almost universal. And I know some people will say, well, this media outlet has this more of an agenda this way, and this one doesn't. Okay, that's fine. You can sort all of that out. But understand, it's very difficult for people to be completely objective, and we need to un- we need to assume that somebody is trying to tell us something so that we will believe something. Maybe we'll agree with them. Maybe we'll promote their agenda. It, it really doesn't matter whether it's a, an agenda on this side of the political spectrum or on the other side of the political spectrum. It's really about them trying to convince us to agree with them. And sometimes we will agree with them, and sometimes we won't. But I think the key here is to be aware of that potential for manipulation. Now, there are a few people that I will listen to, and we're not going to talk about specifics. I want you to sort this out and uh, get with your friends and kind of help each other sort this out. There are a few people that I've discovered that they don't seem to be trying to manipulate me. Well, that doesn't mean they don't have a viewpoint. That's not it at all. They, in the one in particular that I'm thinking of, oh boy, a viewpoint, absolutely unabashedly doesn't hold back. Well, I find that helpful because now I know where that person's coming from And so I don't run the same risk of being manipulated if I know what he's trying to get me to think and, or do. Does that make sense? You know, if they're right out front saying, this is what I believe and I want you to do it the same, then I can sort that out and I can decide whether I agree or not. So pay attention, think through things carefully, understand that in almost every situation, somebody is trying to get you to think the way they want you to think. Well, It's true for this program, isn't it? Don't I spend my time trying to convince you that the Bible says this or the Bible says that? Now, I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm trying to help you find the way, the truth, and the life. But if you think that's manipulation, then you at least need to be aware that that's what I'm trying to do, right? And if you don't like that, then you need to think about how you're going to handle that. But If what I'm telling you is true, and if the words of Jesus ring true in your heart, then you will respond and follow Him. Uh, Don't follow me. Uh, I'm, I'm not Him. You need to follow Him. So just don't be naive. Expect that somebody's trying to convince you, and listen carefully to what's going on there. Now, there's a related question that was submitted by the person, and I don't know who put this question out there when they did, and it doesn't matter. But the related question is, if the media is trying to manipulate us, then who's behind this? Well, that sort of implies there must be these sinister forces behind what's going on. And I don't know. Maybe there are. You listen to some people, and they'll tell you it's this or that, or they'll name one person or another person or this group or that group. And, you know, often we lump all of that in with the idea of some kind of conspiracy, well, I don't know if there's conspiracies necessarily to manipulate you. Uh, I know there are people that definitely wanna manipulate you. I, I'm reluctant to, to go down the road to say there's one group that we can identify or one person that we could identify because if we tend to take that approach, then we think we can fix it by addressing that single group or that person. And I don't think that's helpful. But I do think it's helpful for the church to think differently about what's going on in the world today. I do think it's necessary for us to realize that what's going on in the world today is clearly and more clearly all the time that what's happening in the world today is a battle between good and evil. So in one sense, when you ask, Are you being manipulated by the media? You need to stop and think, is somebody trying to convince me that good is evil and evil is good? You know, is somebody trying to manipulate me? Am I having trouble sorting this out, realizing that that what's going on here is a battle between good and evil? Clearly in the Bible, there are many such battles. Many times it's quite obvious that it's a battle between good and evil. We just don't tend to think about that as much as we should. And and a a simple one, at least to me, it seems simple. I try to aim for simple sometimes. A a simple one that we can use to illustrate this is this whole business of gender identity. Now, this idea of gender identity is, is really a very modern construct, a very modern idea that somebody can identify and choose their gender. We've always believed for years, centuries, that we were male or female, and so now all of a sudden we've got this idea that we can be something else, and there have been instances in history, I'm not saying that people haven't done this years ago, they have, but this idea that's struck in the modern mind is taking root that it's true, you can, you can be what you choose to be. Well, not when it comes to something that's decided at the cellular level, not when it comes to something that God has created you to be male and female. And so what I want us to understand is this is an example of manipulation, but this is an example of manipulation by the evil one, trying to convince us of something that God made, that God said is wonderful. Go back to the story of creation. So much helpful stuff comes out of the story of creation. God created male and female. I've always been interested in the specific way the English translations say that to make the point, to repeat it so that we don't miss it, that God created us as men or women. And he liked it. And he said that our creation as men and women represents the image of God. And he was pleased with that. He was pleased to make us people, you, me. Yeah, I've got an appearance, a face for radio, as they say. I get that. But God looks at us, and he says, I like what I've created, When I created people. They reflect my image. Now, come along and twist that by saying a woman can be a man, or a man can be a woman. And what are we doing? We are attacking the image of God. And that is manipulation, and that is a battle between good and evil. And the church needs to wake up and to recognize so many of the things that are going on are battles between good and evil. There's there's no getting around it, and we shouldn't try. We need to make sure we help each other see that for what it is. And it takes and it takes on in- increasing importance because when our decision makers that we elect to a school board or to a state legislature or to the Congress of the United States, maybe we elect somebody to be governor, city council, all every single one of our elected representatives has to decide between right and wrong, good and bad, or sometimes good and evil. Every time they cast a vote, They are deciding which way is the way that they call good. So when something comes up before them, if they say, that's good, I like that, they vote yes. But if they look at that and they say, oh, that's bad, that's not good, they vote no. It's always a choice between good and evil. That's why it's so important that the people you elect to office have a good moral foundation. That's why it's so important that the Bible informs their understanding of that which is right and wrong, because they will make decisions about that which is right and that which is wrong, and it happens all the time. So we need to understand that we're being manipulated to think that what God says is right is wrong, and what God says is wrong is right. that manipulation is the foundation of the human problem, because in the first chapter of Romans, it says says very clearly that the problem that people have is that they know there's a God, but they refuse to honor him as God. All of the breakdown of all the problems that are listed in Romans chapter 1 and other places in the Bible come from that foundational reality, that someone has manipulated us so that we don't believe God is God and honor him as God. Same problem as Adam and Eve. They didn't believe God and they got on the wrong track. Things went downhill fast. So trust God. He is trustworthy. When God says it's right, it's right. You can count on it. When God says it's wrong, it's wrong. You can count on it. Let the Bible inform you. Don't come to the Bible as you're as if you're the judge and you're going to look at the Bible and say, well, I don't believe that. Well, you might not believe that, but you need to let God convince you because he's told us the truth for a long time. And we need to come to realize God is God and we are not, and we can trust him. And that's what I want you to do. I want you to develop the kind of faith that recognizes God for who he is. And then you can begin to have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. That's the point that we want to get to. We want to have so much confidence in God that when we step across that line to follow Him, we go all the way in following Him, and the line is so far in our rearview mirror that we hardly see it, because we have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And I hope you do too, and we'll be back doing the same thing next week. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. Thanks so much for joining us.